Voices serves as the megaphone for individuals who have endured transformational change. By highlighting trials and triumphs, our desire is to create a safe space for pivotal conversations, which in turn will deepen the story and provoke hope for you, our listeners. As you may know, change is never easy, but it is inevitable. You are not alone in what you're facing. Your transformation is possible, purposeful, and now. And here's Aaron Wiggum, founder and managing director of New You, with this week's guest. Welcome to another edition of New Voices. I am your host, Aaron Wiggum, and also the managing director of New You, which is a way for diverse talent to imagine, discover, and actualize a 2.0 version of yourself. Today on this podcast, we have a wonderful guest who comes to us by way of Colombia. Uh, she is an amazing leader in the Hispanic community here in Tulsa. She is the founder of Uma Tulsa, uh, which is helping uh, Hispanic founders start businesses and scale businesses. Uh, she's a strategist. She's a thought leader. She is a motivator. She's a professional speaker. She also has done work in higher education. She is a just pure, purebred contributor. Uh, every time I'm, I'm around in circles and around different circles and her name comes up, all I ever hear about is impact. We are so glad to be in partnership with her. You're about to spend some time with one of Tulsa's most wonderful and original individuals. I want you to welcome Marta Zapata. Welcome, welcome Marta. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be sharing this time with you today. Yes, yes, yeah. We're going to get right in. We're so glad to be in partnership, and we got connected about uh, a month or, two, or six weeks or six or seven weeks ago with uh, Cynthia Hasso. Uh, shout out to Cynthia at GKFF. She got us connected, and right away it was just like, yes, let's make it all happen, right? And so um, we're glad to be in partnership with Uma and the work that you're doing. And then also, uh, you know, you came and supported us at our at our um, Q1 celebration, Tulsa's brightest. And so this is this is going to be a wonderful time, just engaging, right? So uh, I want to go back uh, a little bit, and I would love for you to walk us through your story. What is what is the Marta Zapata story? Wow. Well, I almost never um, discussed the story. Okay. You know, um, I am always behind the scenes. Um, I love when uh, our team members mm -hmm. and our clients are front and center. Mm -hmm. That is uh, really kind of my job. And I have come to realize that I'm more a connector yeah. than any, anything else. But of course, there is always a story. Yes. Yeah, there is always a story behind. And my story is the story of um, immigration, mm -hmm. I would say. Um, I was born in Colombia. I grew up in there and I attended college mm -hmm. there in Colombia. So I came to the States a little bit later than many other people. Mm -hmm. I was, um, you know, some people come here as uh, children, youth, and I came here really in my late 20s. Mm -hmm. um, I already had a degree in psychology from Colombia. I was practicing there as an organizational psychologist, and I had a consulting company as well mm. um, under my own name, yeah. Marta Isabel Zapata Consulting okay. Organizational con consulting, and I did uh, recruitment, selection, and training for national and international corporations. Mm -hmm. 
So I was uh, there in Colombia before I came here, but I had all these um, kind of experiences behind me already. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I decided to come here in 1998. Mm -hmm. I saw uh, this opportunity to come in. I received an invitation uh, from somebody that I met in Colombia to come and see the country. And I really was very interested in learning English because um, I could read psychology papers. In college, we learned to write psychology papers because we had to do a thesis. Yes. And the thesis required to do a little review. And back those days, all research was published only in English. Uh, we did not have really Spanish journals, mm -hmm. scientific journals that I knew of, particularly in psychology, maybe in other areas. So I, I knew how to read psychology papers, I could understand that we were taught in, in college to do that, mm -hmm. but I couldn't understand speaking English and I could not speak English at all. Yeah. So to me, it was a, a challenge. Yes. And I had my company there and I put it on hold uh, and I came to the States and uh, I ended up staying here. Okay. All right. And so when you came to the States, where did you go originally? Well, here in Tulsa. Okay. So Tulsa is the only place I have ever lived. Wow. Yes. Okay. I, I have traveled, but I never have lived anywhere else. So I joke that this is where I'm going to be buried. Okay. And what drew you to Tulsa? Um, Tulsa has the University of Tulsa. Yes. And I had a boss at the time. I was doing consulting, but I also had a company that hired me as a I would say a contractor mm -hmm. or a part-time employee because they really wanted for me to be in their offices yeah. uh, like three hours a, a, um, a day or something like that. Mm -hmm. So the person that I was reporting to uh, in the company actually had been born in Tulsa mm -hmm. because his father was doing a master's degree in petroleum engineering mm -hmm. at the University of Tulsa. And... Uh, so he is really interesting having in Tulsa. Anyway, so I learned uh, about the University of Tulsa, mm -hmm. the wonderful organizational psychology program that they have at mm -hmm. the master level, at the doctoral level. Mm -hmm. And that was my dream. And I wanted to uh, learn English. I also know, knew at the time that Oral Roberts University had a international program. Yes. An ESL program. I don't know if it still is there, but mm -hmm. uh, they used to have this program. Anyway, so Tulsa seemed to offer all of these opportunities. It was a city small enough mm -hmm. to get around. Yeah. Uh, I was not very inclined to go to a big city. Yeah. So I ended up uh, coming to Tulsa and staying here in Tulsa. Wonderful, wonderful. So before we get too deep into Tulsa, let's go back to Colombia, all right? Um, when you think about uh, your time in Colombia and the impact that you had, how much does the work that you're currently doing relate to the work that you were doing then? I know you were younger, but what, what are some things that, like, like what is the t connection between the work you're currently doing and maybe some things that uh, you were doing as a youth that prepared you for the work that you're doing now? That is such an interesting question, Aaron, because I had not thought about that, but there are a lot of connections. I'm sure, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, very, it's, it's a very, very good question. Um, when I came to the United States, I could not call myself a psychologist here, right. and I still can't right. because the program I graduated from uh, is not uh, Ameri an American not, Psychological Association. Yeah, acknowledged. Program. Yeah. Yes, and so I did not realize when I was there that um, certain, uh, the name of certain professions such mm -hmm. as social worker yep. or psychologists are actually trademarked. Mm -hmm. 
by these organizations. Yes. And um, so when I came here, I thought, oh my gosh, I didn't know that beforehand. So mm -hmm. if I cannot call myself a psychologist, what do I do? And of course, I still have to learn English. I really did not realize at the time uh, the challenges of being an immigrant, mm -hmm. the challenges of speaking as, uh, English as a second language and yeah. having an accent and how that would impact my career. Mm -hmm. But what I see um, that uh, kind of prepared me for the job and the work that I'm doing here is uh, the fact that I was an entrepreneur in my country of origin. There you go. Yes, because I started this consulting company and I supported myself with this consulting company for four years mm. before I came to the States. Mm. And um, although originally I was working with individuals as well, doing some clinical psychology, really what I, I was developing the most and all of that was word of mouth was my... Uh, corporate clients. Mm. So my clients were big corporations, banks, insurance companies that um, needed uh, human resources. So I started with one single client, which was a bank, and um, but they were part of a conglomerate. Mm -hmm. And the human resource uh, VP at the bank recommended me to their peer mm -hmm. at another organization or corporation that was owned by the same group. Right. And interestingly enough, this was the Los Jesuitas, okay. Jesuits, I believe is how you say in English. Mm -hmm. Jesuit. Yeah, mm -hmm. the Jesuits. So they were the owners of these uh, companies mm -hmm. and the name of the primary companies, the Caja so La Fundación Social y Sus Empresas, okay. the social foundation and its companies. Mm -hmm. And the companies existed to provide funding for, for the foundation to do social um social work, yes. you know, among the poor, creating uh, employment and generating employment and also building uh, housing, yeah. you know, low-cost housing. Anyway, so I was doing that in Colombia and I went through the process of registering my business there mm -hmm. and getting clients, mm -hmm. cultivating those clients, doing a good job and getting more clients. Yeah. Uh, so then I have five corporate clients and they came me pretty, pretty busy and I had to hire psychology students to help me mm -hmm. with the uh, testing because we do a lot of testing in Colombia mm -hmm. and some um, interviewing. So that in a way prepared me mm -hmm. for what I'm doing now because it's come to th you come to think it's very similar. Yeah. Uh, starting my own business, I started a consulting company back in 2016. And what I'm doing now is an extension in a way of what I did when I was in Colombia. Yeah, perfect. It's a perfect dovetail because when you look at it, from what you're explaining, you were consulting conglomerates then, and now you're consulting startups. So it's at the beginning of the journey and you can help them to navigate how to get to become this big company by the, some of the things that you probably have uh, witnessed throughout the growth of those bigger companies. So uh, that's that's perfect. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, your personal life, all right? And so your career is is moving and progressing. You now are, you have migrated now into, or immigrated now into Tulsa, Oklahoma, the middle of America. Uh, we're not near a coast, so you come from a coastal town, right? Uh, in Colombia, you're not near a coast, uh, you're in the heart of America. Uh, you, there's not an abundance of um, Hispanics in Tulsa at that time, right? Um, talk a little bit about what, what, from a personal standpoint, what did that transition look like? How did you feel in those in those days of your your, your early days of being becoming an American? 
Yes, it was very challenging, and it's interesting because we, my my state, mm-hmm. my department has a coastal area, mm-hmm. but I'm not from that part okay. of the country. I am actually from the Central Valley. Okay, that is surrounded by mountains, so okay. I'm kind of valley a valley person. Valley, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, being an immigrant is very challenging, and I totally underestimated how challenging it was going to be. Yeah. Uh, I think that I was young and foolish. And I just never saw kind of what could, could go wrong. And so many things can go wrong. I didn't have a support system here. I didn't have my family. Mm-hmm. You know how family, how uh, how important family is for yes. Latinos. I really didn't know people here in, in Tulsa. I didn't speak the language. I had some savings, you yes. know, from my company. Um, so one of the first things that I noticed, there are kind of two things. One was that um, I started being considered a minority. Mm-hmm. So in Colombia, I was a Colombian. Yes. Yeah. And then I here I was a Latina. Yes. So I had to learn how to be a Latina in a way. Mm-hmm. At least learn what the stereotype of Latinos were, how we were seen. Mm-hmm. And um, so that is kind of, kind of a process. Yes. And the other is about uh, as well race and race and ethnicity, which they are kind of related mm-hmm. to that because I never had to ask the question. I'm sorry, never had to answer the question before mm-hmm. in Colombia what my race was. Right. And it's like, um, I had no idea. Yes. Because our backgrounds are really mixed in yeah. Colombia. Mm-hmm. So I have a little bit of everything. When mm-hmm. I look at my grandparents, it's right. like, I have everything. It's like, I don't know how to answer this question. So yeah. also I realized that the United States is a, is a society that is um, in which race and ethnicity, uh, race and ethnicity are so important. Yes. Uh, and that is not to say that in Colombia, it's, it's those things are not, they yeah. are. Right. But um, in a way you see them here, it's like front and center. Oh yes, everything. It's, the first, it's before you do anything, like what, are, what do you identify as? Exactly, yeah. as an indi- yeah. yes, before I am an, seen as an individual. Yes. I am seen as a Latina. As a label, yes. As a label. So learning about those labels and those boxes. Because people put you in boxes based on your ethnicity. They start assuming things about you. Yes. And learning to live with that (laughs) and to navigate those identities. Because then I was then not just a woman, Mm -hmm. uh, but I was a Latina then. Then Mm -hmm. I was a minority. Then I was an English language learner. Right. Then I was an immigrant. Mm -hmm. Imagine, so you... Pile up all those all identities. Layers. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, but I think it has been an amazing experience. I don't think that I would have grown, grown as much mm-hmm. uh, emotionally and spiritually if I had remained in Colombia because I had a pretty comfortable life. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents were still, in a way, supporting us, although I was a professional woman making my own money. Mm-hmm. Latino parents want for their kids, particularly their daughters, and yes. the only daughter to live with them until they get married. Yes. So my parents had um, bought an apartment in the capital in a gated community for my two brothers and I to live there. Mm. My dad there uh, was there. He was retired and lived with us part-time to help us manage the household. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in, in many ways, it was a privileged life, right. yes? And then coming here, you lose all of that. Everything, yes. You know, I had the best ins- health insurance that money could buy. Mm-hmm. Then I came here and I had no health insurance. Mm. Uh, I didn't realize when I came here either that you needed a car in Tulsa, Oklahoma to get around. You better believe it. <laughs> I was used to taking cabs yeah. and I bought my first car like a year before I came to the States mm-hmm. uh, because I was just taking taxis everywhere. Right. 
and walking. We walk a lot in there. So there were so many changes that um, I I was in this situation of a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. I became a disadvantaged person. Yes. And my parents were teachers in Colombia. So it's not that we were wealthy people, mm-hmm. but we were always middle class. Mm-hmm. Although you look at our household, we always had just the bare necessities. My parents never believed in in lujos, mm-hmm. you know, in buying luxurious stuff yeah. or anything like that. They were always saving for a college education. Uh, so navigating those identities uh, was one of the biggest challenges that I had in the overcoming barriers and in a way proving to people that I could um, be a, a professional, that I could do the job that they will assign to me, uh, convincing people to give me an opportunity to demonstrate that I had talent. Yeah. It, it just uh, became that struggle, you know, yeah. where you have all those things kind of going against you. So uh, how did you go about navigating those waters, right? You're young, you are unfamiliar with this place, you are trying to find your way, um, your career is moving forward, um, I, 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 but how did, you go, how did you go about finding the lily pads to land on to be able to find your way, and more importantly than find your way, but to carve out your own way? Because from what I'm hearing from you is that you didn't follow a path that was already laid you kind of carved out your own path. You trailblazed, right? And so um, what gave you the gumption to do that? And then how did you go about that? Yes, that is interesting because the reason I mentioned before that I was a psychologist in Colombia and I could not call myself a psychologist here mm-hmm. is that when you make those type of moves mm-hmm. into a new country, oftentimes your education mm-hmm. uh, doesn't really count. Yes. Yes, your degrees mm-hmm. do not translate here. Right. And that meant at the time that I could not follow that path. I could not be here while I was or I had been in Colombia. Yes. And I, I think that the ability to pivot, the ability to reinvent yourself is essential mm. and in a way to create a new you. Yes. So that is go. why I identify so much with what you do. I love the way you followed that path right into there. That, that, that's great. <laughs> because it's essential. You have to create a new you. you and do. I believe that you have to do that more than once in life. Oh, definitely. And if you don't, you are not going to succeed. Yeah. Um, the other thing is I believe that you cannot let people define who you are. Wonderful. Based on those labels yes. or based on what they see, uh, 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 you know, uh, the exterior. Yeah. You mm-hmm. cannot let that. Yeah. So I think that my advantage was, number one, in a way, um, not growing in the, in the United States meant that I never would learn English as well as a native. Yes. And it, I consider that, that a big disadvantage. Mm-hmm. But the advantage that I have by now growing up in the States is that I grew up with a sense of who I was. There you go. You knew who you were, right? I knew who I was. Yeah. So when I came to the States and people would look at me and talk to me and treat me like I was illiterate, right? I was like, well, sorry you think that, but I know who I am. Right. And I know what I'm capable of. Yes. Even if you don't trust me and you don't believe that I can do this. Um, so that sense... Uh, I consider that very important. I think that it's something that f- families can give children. Mm-hmm. And in my case, the uh, uh, other advantage I have was my father. Mm-hmm. So my dad, I am the only girl, but my dad raised me in a way that led me to believe. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that uh, in a way he misled me 
that I could be anything I wanted and that being a girl never was a disadvantage. That's it. Mm-hmm. So my dad treated me intellectually mm-hmm. as an equal. And nice. we had this very interesting conversation since we, I was very young. Mm. And he ne- never treated me, intellectually speaking, different than he treated my brothers. Right. So he never made that distinction between being a girl and being a boy. Mm-hmm. It's like um, he expected, my parents both expected the same from me, mm-hmm. intellectually speaking, um, achievement-wise, uh, academically. Mm-hmm that they expected from my brothers. Yeah. Or even more. My yeah. mom said it's more important for you to go to college than it's for your brothers because your brothers will get a job. They'll find their way, yeah. Either if they don't have a college degree, yeah. but for a woman, yeah. it's even more important to have a college degree mm-hmm. if you ever want to have a decent job. Yeah. So you must go to college even if your brothers don't. And so I think that uh, that coming from my father mm. made a big difference in my life yeah. because I grew up with a belief Yeah. And then when I was um, a young woman, I realized, oh, my gosh, particularly in the States, I realized that there are many disadvantages to being a woman. Mm-hmm. I never felt that way in Colombia, but I felt oftentimes that here in the States. Mm. And I, um, knowing, you know, what my father had told me, helped me kind of to hold my own. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, I'm as capable as anyone else. Yeah. Um, so I think that those internal resources are really important. That is why families are so important. Yeah. That is why parenting is so important and yes. the environment in which children grew up is yeah. essential because that creates a foundation for later in life. So when I went through very challenging, difficult times uh, as an immigrant, you know, and also um, at some point being a really challenging relationship, mm-hmm personal relationship, um, in those moments, I know I know who I am. Yeah. I know where I come from. Yes. I grew up in a good family, not a perfect family by any means, because yeah. my parents even ended up divorcing. Mm-hmm. But I have parenting that was good enough, yes. so to speak. Yeah. You know, meaning, you know, parents that were there right. for us. And to me, that was very viable um, when I was here on my own. You, you hit on so many wonderful things there. I, one of the things I, I just want to highlight is there's a saying that goes, two, two sayings I'll mention. One goes, the saying goes that mothers tell you how to be. They teach you how to be and fathers tell you who you are, right? And the balance of both is to make a whole well, well-rounded individual, right? And so if you think about it, you know, and I, I don't say I ascribe or do not ascribe to this, this thought, but, you know, that mothers are... They teach you the manners and what to, you know, pace yourself and all that sort of thing. Whereas a father is going to speak in, uh, affirmatively into your life to say, no, this is who you are. Don't let that be negotiable, right? And so when you saying that your father was able to impart into you in that way, uh, it just it just really hit so many uh, points uh, that I wanted to make. Uh, and so as you uh, you're navigating this new space, people are questioning who you are, how you are. Um, you know, what you're capable of, but you don't have a question about any of that because you've already been affirmed. And even if you did have moments of doubt, you could always draw back on the affirmation to say, no, I know I can do this. And it, it, it doesn't matter if you think I can or can't, I know I can. I think what's even more powerful though is now you are in the driver's seat telling other people that they can. You're playing that voice of affirmation to to a whole community of Latinos who are, who you're able to say, no, I believe that you can. And if you believe and I believe, I know it can happen, right? And so how powerful is that for you to 
uh, relay the spirit of your father's words and affirmation into a whole new community of individuals who almost believe in themselves because you believe in them, right? That's a that's a very powerful position to be in. Exactly. And that's what I want to convey to entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't always say, oh, well, if I made it, you also will make it. Right. You will make it because sometimes there are differences. Like, for example, Aaron, I have to acknowledge that I have privileges. Yeah. Okay. For example, having an education in my country of origin by itself is a privilege. Mm-hmm. And it's easier to learn a second language, in my opinion, if you already are well-versed in your primary language. Yes. It's difficult to learn English when you don't even know Spanish very well right. or you speak Spanish very poorly because your schooling was um, not what it should have been. Yes. Uh, I have known many people who went to schools that was a one-room school. Mm-hmm. Yes. Grade zero to oh, kindergarten to yes. High school, it was one room. Yeah. You know, so that's a privilege in itself. Being in a two-parent household mm-hmm. was a privilege in itself. Having parents who were teachers, which did not make a whole lot of money, but they had these aspirations for their children. Yes. Um, for my parents' education was the most important thing in the world. Mm-hmm. I remember when I started my doctoral program, and I talked to my dad, and I said, Dad, I quit my job, and full-time job, and I'm going to be a... Uh, full-time doctoral student, and I'm going to be making $1,300 a month for uh, for eight months yeah. of the year. And, uh, and you know, that's solid all money. And my dad's answer was, honey, but education is so beautiful. Yeah. And I thought, oh my gosh, you thinking about knowledge, you know? Right. And my mom always say, what you have in your head, nobody can take away from you. That's right. What you learn, nobody can take away from you. Um, yes, but uh, I think that those experiences in... Um, Early experiences are, are really important. I remember one day um, I went to an apartment complex and I thought, you know, um, I bet you I could do that type of job that these ladies at the front desk are doing. And I was looking for a job and I thought, well, I can be a leasing agent. You know, it doesn't look that challenging mm-hmm. to sit in a desk and then show an apartment. Yeah. So I went looking, um, asking for these, um, you know, opportunities. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when I talked to the front desk people, um, I said, you know, I asked, I don't remember the exact, exact words that I used, but we were along the lines of, hey, I'm looking for oppor- job opportunities. Would you have any openings? And she said, well, no, we, our cleaning crew is complete. We don't have any cleaning jobs. Just assumed that's what you wanted. And I, yeah. I was like... Shock is like, oh, she thought I was applying for the cleaning job. Right. And there is nothing wrong with a cleaning job because any job, in my opinion, is an honorable job. Yeah. But that's not what I had in mind. Right. Yes. And, but I realized, oh, she probably is perceiving me that way because of my language skills. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but then, you know, I thought... Okay, well, that is the way she perceives me, mm-hmm. but that is not the way I see myself. I know that I'm capable of other things. Yes. And then at some point in my life, uh, as an immigrant also, uh, I was quite poor at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had been able to rent an apartment, found a job and rent an apartment, but I didn't have any furniture in this apartment whatsoever. Mm. And so I remember one of my boss, and I didn't have a car. So my boss was this uh, wonderful lady. She brought me to, to the apartment one day because she realized I was walking. Mm-hmm from my apartment to my workplace. 
came back and I was walking around 9 p.m. because I was working all the extra time that they will give me. This was a call center. Mm -hmm. And she came into my apartment when she brought me home and she stood at the door and she saw that this apartment was empty. Mm. I had a blanket. And and uh, and she's, she's like, she looked at me like in disbelief. And I could tell, you know, she was thinking, oh my gosh, this woman is so poor. And inside myself, what I was thinking was, mm, I just don't have any money right now. Mm. But I did not see myself as poor. Poor, right. I saw myself as in a challenging situation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of situational poverty. Yeah. And I would not even call it poverty. You know, I thought, I don't have a whole lot of money right now. Mm-hmm. But, but that didn't bother me. And, and I never thought I was going to be in that situation forever. Mm-hmm. So I worked uh, all the extra time that the call center gave me and I found, I bought myself a cricket phone, cell phone, and then I saved enough to buy myself a car. Mm-hmm. And I bought it for cash, like for $5,000 that I saved mm-hmm. working overtime. And, um, and I went from there, you know, and then I validated my foreign credentials. Mm-hmm. And then I was able to find a professional job as a clinician working with mental clients. Okay. And I went from there, but I never saw myself as in this state of poverty forever. Right. Because I always believe I, I think I can make it if yeah. I work hard enough, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's very interesting, you know, all of these challenges. I think that are not unique to me. Yeah. And sometimes I tell this story now often, but when I share this, mm-hmm. it's always to tell people, you know, we all go through difficult times, mm-hmm. but the situation is, I mean, doesn't mean that those situations last forever. Right. Or that they have to define you. Or they define you. Exactly. No, you go through the situations, but they, you are not your situations. Right. You are not your condition. Yes. You are who you believe you are. Correct. Yep. As I said in the beginning, uh, New New Voices is a platform um, that serves as a megaphone for individuals who have endured transformational and pivotal experiences, all right? And so I want you to walk us through a time in your life, uh, it could be personal or professional, where you didn't know if you were going to make it through that time period. You didn't know how you were going to make it through there. What was, how did, how did you feel in that moment? And then how did you overcome uh, and persevere to where you are today? I think that probably one of the most challenging situations, I have several, but uh, is the one that I uh, touch upon, mm-hmm. you know, in, in which I found myself with nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have the savings that I have brought from Colombia anymore. Mm-hmm. And I had to find a job and I was not speaking English fluently yes. at the time. So um, what I did is like I do... Uh, I do this, I guess, for everything. I research things. Mm-hmm. And I started looking around for a job that I could do. Mm-hmm. It's like, what job can I do? And I didn't have a car. So I realized that I had to find the job first and then find uh, housing that was close enough that I could walk to my workplace. Mm-hmm. And at the time, my mom loaned me some money. And mm-hmm. this is also a privilege because many times, many people don't they have don't a have, parent, yeah. you know, so I don't take this for granted. Yes. <laughs> See, so she loaned me some money and I was able to rent the apartment. Yeah. How lo- now, how long of a period of time are we talking about here? Um, 
that lasted for about six months to okay. a year. Okay. You know, until I over over overcame that. Mm-hmm. So. Um, and how new were you to the country at that point? I was about um, two years. Okay. Two years. So you're still relatively new. I was, yes. And new to the city as new well. New to the city, new yes. New culture. Okay. New culture. Yes. And I did not have, and I have been in a relationship with somebody that um, did not want for me to have friends, mm. did not want for me to... Controlling. To learn English. Yeah. And that's why I didn't have a support system. And that's why I never went to school to learn English. I learned English on my own with a dictionary. Mm. I never went... Because I couldn't. Right. And um, so when I found um, myself outside of this relationship, I was totally on my own and with no money whatsoever. Wow. And um, so my mom loaned me some money. And um, but it was not enough. Mm. You know, it was not enough to do everything I, yeah. I needed. Anyway, so I thought, well, the, the, I, I need to create a plan. So the plan was to find a job first. And I went into this call center and I was hoping that they will have um, part of the call center where they might have uh, Spanish speakers working in there, mm-hmm. you know, because I thought, well, there has to be Spanish speakers who are clients of these big companies. Right. Uh, it was a call center for AT&T mm-hmm. and, um, and they did not. Mm. Everything was in English, but they hired me. And I always joke that they were so desperate that they hired me. <laughs> to the, anyway, so uh, I found the apartment and yeah. I walked about um, three quarters of a mile. Mm. Uh, every day. Every day, each way. Yeah. And um, and then I thought, that, then I, I'm going to be at this call center, but not forever. I'm going to be here probably six months and I'm going to validate my foreign credentials. So yeah. I spent some money from my mom on sending my educational credentials for evaluation. And mm-hmm. then eventually, like three or four months later, I got a, a, a letter mm-hmm. stating that they uh, were equivalent to a bachelor's degree. Then with that, I went to Catholic Charities. They had kind of uh, buying there really at the time mm-hmm. with job openings and then resumes. And I left my resume there. And eventually they called me. In the meantime, I continued working all, all the overtime I could to save for the car that I mentioned. And finally, I was able to buy a car. Mm-hmm. And that took me about six months to save okay. money. And then I, in that process, also I repaid my mom mm. her money. And, uh, and then some wonderful friends that I met refor- uh, furnished my apartment. One day, a Saturday, somebody knocked on my door. Mm. And these were a family. Um, that I befriended and they brought me furniture mm-hmm. and I was amazed they furnished my little apartment wow. on one Saturday and I was just shocked because I never told them. One of the family members had visited me mm-hmm. and had seen that I didn't have anything in my apartment and they told the other ones and then uh, the aunts, the uncles, they all gathered what they have in their garages and they brought it to me. Wow. Anyway, so uh, eventually they co- a company called me, Grand Lake Mental Health, to work as a clinician mm-hmm. because they, I think, uh, through Catholic charities, they had identified a so-called bilingual person. I was not truly bilingual at the time. But in the call center, the other thing that happened is I was promoted, which was very interesting. Mm, and how I was promoted because I never miss work and I never was late mm. to work. And so my boss, when they talked to me, and uh, he started asking me questions and he realized I didn't have a car. And he said, how come at the time I didn't have a car? I bought it after I was promoted to this other, other job within the same call center. He said, how come you never are late if you don't have a car? And if when it's no, whatever you are here, I said, well, because, because I need the money. I need to work really yeah, hard, yeah. <laughs> you know. And uh, eventually I was uh, promoted 
to a department called Batch. Mm. Batch and in Batch, we never had to talk to the clients. Mm. We just got a lot of bills and we were over like at least 100 bills a day doing adjustments on the, these bills. Okay. Anyway, so those, uh, probably that was the more, most difficult time, but eventually I found a professional job and the rest is history. Wow, that's powerful. I actually started my career in a call center and um, I tell uh, new you participants during the session how much I absolutely hated being in a call center. Uh, God bless the people who do, uh, the people who love it, you know, kudos to you. I absolutely hated being in a call center. And, um, but what I tell you, what I used to tell my students at Penn State all the time was that uh, the jobs that you hate prepare you for the job that you love. And so just take the transferable skills, all of the collateral, all the information that you're learning from the things that you don't feel like doing, and it will prepare you for the thing that is to come that you will absolutely love doing. And so I was able to take those transferable skills, and now I'm teaching people the skills that I hated, uh, well, the, the, the skills from the job that I hated uh, when I worked at, at, a, at a call center. So I, I understand um, when you're trying to make something out of little, out of very little. Absolutely. Yeah. And I will tell you, I learned two things really important there. Yeah. So obviously nobody wanted to be on the phones. It was yeah. very stressful because people call angry yes. about their bill. Right away. Yeah. But one of the things I learned was customer service. Yes. So when people call angry, and particularly older people that couldn't understand me, they would say, put somebody on the phone who speak English. Yes. <laughs> and so what I say is like, mom, sir, um, I'm so sorry that you can understand me. I really apologize for that. But I want to help you. Mm -hmm. If you give me the chance to help you, yeah. I will. And wow. I will fix your bill. Just speak slowly. Yeah. And I will help you. And wow. people calm down. And I became really good at what I was doing. Uh -huh. And I knew that they, they were having a hard time understanding me. Yeah. I was putting myself in their shoes. Yes. So I was not going to blame them for anything. It's like... And that's how I got. And then I became an expert on the what was called the knowledge management system. Mm -hmm. It was like all of these databases of how to solve problems. Right. So when my my coworkers had an issue or a question, I had an answer. Mm -hmm. So my supervisor noticed that I, I was an expert at the knowledge management system. Mm -hmm. And then when this uh, opening happened in this other department, yeah, bumped up. He immediately called me and said, "You need to apply. I will support you." And that is how I got promoted. So I learned that even if you don't like the job that you are doing, yeah. you do it the best. Yes, do the it best excellence. of your ability and serve people. Yeah. Serving my class, my co my classmate, my coworker and serving my clients yeah. got me out of that. Yeah. Which is counterintuitive, yes. Absolutely. But I was doing. Wow, that's powerful. So this is the last question I, I want to ask you uh, before we get into a call to action. I... Ask every guest pretty much that comes on the show. I want to know, as you've gone throughout this journey called life, and as you've had some peaks and troughs and some hills and valleys, right? I want to know, how do you and how have you held on to hope? No matter if the days are going great or the days are completely falling apart, how do you go about or how have you gone about holding on to hope? I think hope is essential mm -hmm. in life, and particularly for our mental health and our well-being. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think I would have survived without hope. Uh, first of all, hope in, in, in knowing that my family, even from afar, was supporting me, that yeah. they care 
uh, that the job that I was doing matter. And also hoping God, yeah. you know, I pray a lot during this time yeah. uh, to um, make the best decisions possible. And I felt that through all of uh, that difficult time, I felt guided, yeah. you know, from above. And I'm not an extraordinarily religious person, but I definitely have uh, faith and um, I just was holding tight onto that for my dear life. Yeah. And that, and that is essential. Also, hope for the future. And there are different definitions of hope. Uh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, yeah. There is a professor, Rado Yu, that researches hope. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, he said that hope is not like this, just uh, hoping that good things will happen. Right. He actually says that hope is related to strategy and planning. Absolutely. And you, I, I guess that's what I hope. did. Yeah, yeah. You create That is what hope. I did. Yes, yep. I have hope that I could overcome. But yes. I... Create any strategy. strategy. Yes. 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 And I thought this is my best path is to get this job. But yeah. then at the same time, validate my credentials and then apply for a professional job. Yeah. Um, so I think that hope is, is, is essential, but action yeah. has to accompany that hope yes. as well. Yes. You, we cannot just sit and hope that things will happen. You have to. And I think that is what I have done even with Uma Tolsa. Mm-hmm. You know, I could have sad and hope that somebody will give me a job. Right. But I also saw the needs of the community mm -hmm. and the gaps in services. And mm -hmm. I thought, you know what? I had the ability to do something about this. Yeah. And I started doing that. Wow. So how do people best, how can they best contact you? Um, how can they reach you on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn? And then what are some final words you would like to leave with our listeners um, maybe words to live by or, you know, a, a word to, of encouragement. You, I'll leave that up to you. Well, people can follow us on social media. Okay. So we have um, accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. And they are UMA, U, U, mm -hmm. U as in... Umbrella. As in umbrella, U-M-A. Mm -hmm. Tulsa, one single word in... It's the same handle in all three mm -hmm. accounts. We also have another uh, 